The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, was established by the UN General Assembly in 1949 and given a huge task to provide assistance and protection to Palestinian refugees across the Middle East, including the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. This historic task was handed to UNRWA in the months following Israel's War of Independence that resulted in over 700,000 Palestinian refugees fleeing or being expelled from what had been mandatory Palestine. Who could have imagined back then that more than 70 years later, there would not only be still a need for UNRWA, but there would now be more than 5.8 million Palestinian refugees eligible for UNRWA services, including schools for 545,000 children, healthcare and social services, including one and a half million people in refugee camps in the region. But that's not the only challenge facing UNRWA. It's faced challenges to its funding. Last year, the UK cut its funding to UNRWA by more than 50%, a decision that the agency claimed had pushed it closer to collapse and even to the point where it had run out of money. In August 2018, Donald Trump announced that he'd cut all aid to UNRWA, claiming the US was shouldering an unfair burden of the cost, a decision that was overturned two years later by President Biden. But UNRWA still faces issues and criticisms too. Accusations of the presence of allegedly anti-Semitic textbooks in some schools. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council. And to talk about these issues and the crucial work of UMRA, I'm joined from Brussels by Matthias Bouchard, Director of UMRA's Representative Office to the European Union. Matthias, hello. Hi, Charlotte. Pleasure to be with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Matthias, I understand you're the outgoing director. You've been with the agency for how long? You've, you've seen some pretty challenging times. Indeed, Charlotte. Yes, it's 19 years. And as you mentioned, I will be retiring at the end of the year. In this course of these 19 years, I've seen the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, the elections in the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian territories that brought about the Hamas to power the following closure regime that was imposed. And since then, since 2007, five major conflicts in Gaza alone, the Iraq war, Syria civil war, and all the other consequences in the region, including Trump withdrawal of UNRWA funding. So it has been quite exciting. Never a dull day with UNRWA. So Matthias, you've been with UNRWA for almost 20 of its 70 years of existence. What do you think it says about the way that the, the world, we, the region collectively has managed politics, that the agency not only still exists, but the need for it is greater than ever? Indeed. UNRWA is the embodiment of the complete failure of the international community to bring about closure to this oldest, one of its oldest problems. And due to this inability and the overall socioeconomic crisis that four of our five fields of operations are in, UNRWA is more needed than ever. And just to give you an example, for example, in 2005 in Gaza, we had 80,000 people that required UNRWA aid to survive. Now we have over 1 million that could not otherwise survive. And this is really a tragic example. 
of how the international community has effectively neglected this crisis. You just talked about four of your five fields of operation. For those, those of us listening, could you outline what those five fields of operation are? Yes, of course. We operate in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, West Bank, and Gaza. And as might be well known, I mean, in Gaza, we have a terrible situation, a closure that now lasts over 15 years. We have an ongoing occupation situation in the West Bank. And in Syria, a civil war that is ongoing since 2012. The only country that has still a fair degree of stability is Jordan. So when I refer to the four fields, I mean mainly Syria, Lebanon, West Bank, and Gaza. Whilst Jordan, it seems to be stable, it of course is also severely challenged and suffering from the multiple crises around itself. And it has is a host to a huge number of refugees with all the consequences that this small economy has. And we mentioned it in, 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 in our introduction, but UNRWA manages a huge amount of social support and, and crucial support. Can you just outline the main responsibilities that, that UNRWA performs in, in looking after Palestinian refugees? Indeed, UNRWA is mandated to provide foremost governmental-like services. That's why we ourselves consider ourselves a human development agency. These governmental-like services is the provision of basic education. That's normally the first to the ninth grade. We have one exception, Lebanon, where we do teach also secondary education because refugees there do not have access to governmental education. And we provide basic health care. We have 144 clinics, for example, across the Middle East that provide this basic health care. We also provide relief and social services to the most destitute of our refugees. We also have a microfinance program that helps Palestinians to establish small businesses. So this is our, let's say, core programs. In addition to and on top of when required, we also provide humanitarian aid. And that is the, the fantastic strength of UNRWA, that we're basically under one roof, what you would normally have in the UN system with several UN agencies would provide humanitarian aid, food aid, education, healthcare, and even financial support to entrepreneurs through our microfinance program. For all this, one particular uniqueness of UNRWA which is different to all the other UN agencies. We provide all these services direct ourselves to our own staff. We have about 30,000 staff. Most of them, 95% are refugees themselves. So that's a big strength of us that we don't have to deploy staff to actually reach the fields of operation. They actually live there among the refugees. And we have therefore a high degree of control what we're doing and who we're serving. So you have an enormous field of action, both in terms of activity and geographically, an ever-growing need, but ever-reducing funding. Is that correct? Can we just talk about funding for a moment? Absolutely. That's, if you like, a little bit of a birth problem when UNRWA was given the mandate to provide these governmental-like public services, but has been essentially set up to be funded like an NGO. That means that we are reliant on voluntary contributions to operate. And that's a little bit of a discrepancy because if you run these kind of government-like services, you need very predictable funding. 
so that you can ensure this huge staff to be paid monthly and that you can also give guarantees if you start education that children can actually hope to finish their education in the course of these nine years. So that is a little bit our problem and the voluntary contributions of our donors have not kept pace with the rising need for our refugees. We have done what we could to ameliorate our shortage of funding. We have tried to save from our expenditures about 600 million since 2015. So we have really tried to do our homework first before we go back to our doors. But we have persistently over the last 10 years had a deficit of 100 million. And this really cannot continue. So this is our problem at the moment, and we still lack that 100 million to finish this year. I mean, and you've not had predictability, have you? We, we live in politically turbulent times, and President Trump cut the funding. Obviously, the States is back on board with that with Biden. Who are your main donors now? Well, the United States happily has returned with the Biden administration. And this is, of course, fantastic. They are, again, our top donor, and we very much welcome that. It is followed by Germany and the EU. But of course, also you have some of the Nordic countries, you have Japan, and the UK has been for so many years our third, fourth largest donor, but very regrettably fell back in the last years. And just for those who might say, look, we're living through really, really difficult times here in the UK, across Europe. There are people in the UK who are going to be struggling to pay their energy bills, struggling both to heat and eat. People might well say, well, why on earth should the UK support living standards of other people who have nothing to do with us? What would you say to people who are struggling in the UK and to politicians who are trying to explain to those people why we're sending money away to support UNRWA. What would happen if UNRWA wasn't there? What's the point for someone in the UK for our taxpayers' money to be going to UNRWA? This is a very valid question. And of course, my sympathies and solidarity to the British people. But it's precisely in these times when we are all in the global world struggling and faced with these challenges that we should not forget the weakest. And Palestinian refugees, by and large, have been confronted with conflict and economic and other crises for which they had no responsibility themselves. And I think in that sense, if the UK is interested in a degree of stability, even if it's as far away as the Middle East, I think it's important to then support such agencies like UNRWA that can make a difference for people to still live with a certain degree of dignity and can still manage to survive. What would be the consequences if UNRWA would fall away or would disappear? I mean, you can imagine what happened, and maybe we can recall 2015, what happened in Syria when the, the totality of the UN system could not anymore provide for the survival of the refugees. They fled. I mean, anybody would do that in such a situation, and they do not flee to the south, they flee to the north. And even though the UK is an island, I think we'd also be concerned about such situations. And I don't want to dwell on that further. So I think UNWA is a key agency that has been considered, is still considered even by the UK as contributing to the stability in the Middle East, and that includes also Israel. And so I think even if you're struggling with other crises, 
as much as I understand that, you don't want to start or contribute maybe to a catastrophe taking place elsewhere that might affect your country as well. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and I'm talking to Matthias Bouchard of UNRWA. Matthias, people may say, well, this is a Middle East issue. What are Middle East states, particularly Gulf states, doing to help? And perhaps surprisingly, 2021 saw the lowest ever contributions from Arab states. Why do you think that is? And what is the contribution from Arab states to UNRWA? Yes, this is indeed a sad fact. Most development and humanitarian actors in the UN deplore that Arab funding is so unpredictable. In 2018, we got over 200 million. So interesting where Trump uh, actually tried to defund UNRWA. It was the Gulf countries that came in a big way to support us with 200 million. But this fell last year to a low of 27 million. So collectively, the Arab states only covered around 3% of our overall needs. We need to remind our Arab friends in the Arab League that of, of their own resolutions and pronounced commitments. So the League of Arab States and the Gulf Cooperation Council have all said that, that the recent developments will not impact support to the Palestinians. Regrettably, however, as I said, the facts speak another story. So we are trying to remind them that they really need to live up to their own pronounced commitments and show solidarity. But there's slightly some good news just in the last two weeks, just the last two weeks ago, I said, Saudi Arabia returned as a donor with 27 million US dollars. So we very much hope that this new engagement of Saudi Arabia signals a turn of a page that we can now look forward to a more regular contribution by Saudi Arabia. You've already said that in, in many ways, UNRWA is a symptom and an embodiment of the, of the failing of the international community to resolve a long-running, ongoing global issue conflict. To what extent do you think funding to UNRWA is also symptomatic, perhaps, of a global view of the, the Palestinian issue, the Palestinian problem? Has a changing priority system, priority set in, in the region and beyond, has that contributed to funding shortfalls? People are no longer looking at the Palestinian issue in perhaps the same way and as the same priority as they might have done a few decades ago? So now 70 years, this is like nearly two generations. And I don't criticize anybody for trying to understand the continued needs, but surely even in the face of the abundance of worldwide crisis preoccupying, you know, the world's attention, we should, as I outlined earlier, not abandon those agencies that actually matter in stabilizing a volatile situations. And in fact, many countries in the last years when funding has become so scarce, have actually increased their humanitarian funds, including also Asia. I might mention Japan here and Germany. And this, despite that the Middle East peace process is not very much alive as, as some people view it. So in fact, you could argue the other way around that exactly when at times when the world is preoccupied with other crises like now Ukraine, it is important not to forget these southern crises, the neglected crises, because you wouldn't want when you are attending other theaters 
that you have a crisis in, in your backyard and therefore just through the lack of funding, you provoke catastrophe, as I mentioned earlier. So that, that is, I think, what we would appeal for. And I think that there is a good understanding in most parts of the world that even though funding is scarce and competition is high, the Middle East is an area where we do not want another crisis. The observation has been made regarding Ukraine that in the Middle East, that illegal occupations are illegal occupations, regardless of who the occupier is. And I've heard certainly a sense of slight disparity of action and concern about what is seen as, as, as two illegal occupations. Is that something that you detect? Is there a sense that the Palestinian issue is an issue involving an illegal occupation which has fallen off the global consciousness while our focus is on another illegal occupation in Ukraine? Is that something that crosses your desk? Definitely. The Palestine issue, the Middle East peace process is at the moment not the forefront. As you rightly said, in, in past years, it was maybe among the top five international issues that was on the agenda of world attention, but now has decreased in attention. But I would go as far as that it has really sort of fallen off the radar. I think all the issues, Syria, conflict, the West Bank and Gaza, is still very much in the news and in the observation of people. When I look at social media and otherwise, there is a strong attention to that. And even if you like, some connections are made between the crises. As if effectively, the Middle East is, of course, suffering in a way, indirect way, from the Ukraine crisis because of the brain shortage. So, or is it everything is interconnected? And as I said earlier, I think it's very important to remind our governments and donors that, that the stability of the Middle East is something they wouldn't want to fiddle with whilst being preoccupied with other processes. And of course, I guess the Abraham Accords, which was an initiative from Donald Trump, President Trump, has been a very groundbreaking development. That's the, the normalization agreement signed by Israel with, with three Arab states, UAE, Morocco and Bahrain. What effect, if any, is this having on Arab contributions to Umrah and the context in which you operate? I think it varies from one country to the other. Clearly, there is absolutely no contradiction, in our view, between being part of the Abram Accords and to be a friend of Israel and supporting a multilateral agency like UNRWA. The agency provides critical services to Palestinian refugees and contributes to stability in a very volatile region, a stability of which Israel also benefits. We have to find ways to make sure that the mandate of UNRWA, which is almost unanimously renewed by the member states of the General Assembly, is translated into proper resources and that the Arab countries also assume their due responsibility for that. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and I'm talking to Matthias Bouchard of UNRWA. And just keeping on the subject of, of politics and how it affects your work, we've had Israeli elections and we are looking at, in Israeli politics, a far-right-leaning bloc made up of ultra-nationalists and in part ultra-Orthodox politicians forming the next government under Benjamin Netanyahu. And people suggesting that Israeli politics, like much of politics across the world, is, is becoming more extreme. 
How is this impacting your work, given what you say that the benefits to the security of the state of Israel, the stability? As a neutral UN body, we as UNRWA do not comment on the domestic politics of the UN member state. All I can say is that for the last 55 years, so since 1967, UNRWA has enjoyed a very respectful relationship with the state of Israel. It allows our daily operations in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip. It is a trusted relationship that also benefits Israel. So we very much hope and look forward to continue these relations with the present government and its structures as it has been in the past. There's been quite serious criticism of UNRWA and the way you work. And I'm thinking particularly on textbooks. You, you run schools and there have been accusations that some of the textbooks in those schools incite violence, hatred, and you're a UN organization. How do you answer those criticisms that you are helping perpetuate not, not stability, but division amongst young people? How would you answer that? Definitely, we reject strongly any such criticisms or allegations or misrepresentations. Regrettably, coordinated campaigns by politically motivated advocacy groups target parliaments and media and are increasing in frequency maliciousness. They do not have the well-being of Palestine refugees and their and our services at heart. Sometimes they don't even hide their agenda and actively spread baseless and shameless accusations. There's obviously the naive belief that if you can do away with UNRWA, you somehow can do away with Palestine refugees. But let me be very clear here also to your listeners. UNRWA as a UN agency clearly has zero tolerance for any form of racism, hate, incitement, and discrimination. But working in the Middle East in these very volatile situations, as we had discussed, there is no, no zero risk. So therefore we continue to spare no effort to uphold humanitarian principles, including neutrality and the values of the United Nations. Nearly all our personnel are well aware of their obligations as UN staff members. And we take every allegation against individuals that might have transgressed these obligations very, very seriously and take it up in our own way of systematically going after that. So what we can say is, and look at the results, I think if you look at how many of the renowned international organizations, be it UNESCO, World Bank and others at British Council have categorized our work, especially in education as being exemplary in comparison to the regional education systems. I think that should be better understood and known. So we're trying our very best to make sure that precisely these accusations do not take place in our schools. I'm thinking about, there've been reports into books used in UMRA schools. I think there was, there was a report in autumn 2017, for example, that raised serious concerns about textbooks being used in UMRA schools. What do you say about reports like that, that, that cite almost around over 200 books that are problematic? Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, 
there just a very clear first reply is I know that report and we have of course taken that very seriously and 178 books that or legends that are used in our schools are not used in our schools because we only teach to the ninth grade. So the school books are considered to be maybe more problematic are those taught at the 10th to the 12th grade, which we do not teach. And just let me be clear, there are no UNRWA textbooks. UNRWA does not have a curricula or we only use the host country curricula and textbooks. And this is the best practice that the UN and UNESCO recommends in all refugee settings, that refugees are taught in the host country curriculum. So Syrian refugees now in Turkey are taught in Turkish and Syrian refugees in Lebanon are given also the curricula of Lebanon and the same in Jordan. I mean, the same would be in Europe, the case, you know, anybody fleeing to a European country would go to a European school. So this is best international practice. Now, what we do regarding the textbooks of the Palestinian authority, we, UNRWA, assess every single page that is being used in our school. We don't do it just for the Palestinian Authority, but we also do it for all other fields that we operate, trying to really ensure that everything we teach in our schools is compliant with UN standards. And where it's not compliant, we give very clear instructions to our teachers on how to handle such a situation. We have a large set of criteria. Look at how gender issues are addressed. Women are depicted. If there is age appropriate situations explained or not appropriate, all this we address and we give teachers guidance to that. So maybe just to announce that, or just to refer also that the EU has undertaken a study of the Palestinian textbooks, commissioned a study through a German institute called the Gerhard Eckert Institute, which was published in June 2021. And we largely agree with their findings. Their findings clearly state that by and large, and to the greatest extent, the Palestinian textbooks do comply with UNESCO standards. Yes, they are problems and nobody's denying that. And the EU is now engaged in a dialogue with the Palestinian Authority based on the recommendations and findings of this institute, Eckert Institute, trying to bring about a resolution of what is considered still to be problematic. And we very much look forward to the results of this dialogue, which we, of course, then would be happy to comply with. In the meantime, again, we are ensuring that there is no racism, no hate, no incitement in our schools and where the textbooks do not comply with that, we address it. And for that purpose, we have established a digital learning platform that supports students and teachers during instances of where we have to maybe close our schools. This was particularly important during already the Syria civil war, but also sometimes during Gaza violence, but also during the Corona closures. So we have this digital learning platform that supports distant learning. And that is the only official place where we provide our students with learning materials. And this is vetted materials. And we have received praise from all around about how good this digital learning platform is and how well received the material is on, on that platform. 
So again, I can only really starkly refute any of such claims. And it just shows again, what we discussed earlier, that there is that malicious campaigns going on, trying to depict UNRWA as an anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli outfit. Nothing could be further from the truth. As said also earlier, we enjoy a trusted and responsible relationship with the state of Israel that is allowing our day-to-day -day operation. And we just really hope that this textbook issue should not deflect from what UNRWA is in fact really doing. So I guess what you're saying is that UNRWA actually provides a, a layer of checks and balances as to what's being taught in Palestinian schools that, that wouldn't exist were UNRWA not to run schools. Absolutely. And in addition to that, we are providing this sort of screening and ensuring that UNRWA schools are really places where children receive best possible education. We also have introduced with U.S. and Norwegian funding, human rights and tolerance education. This is the only part that we actually have developed ourselves. We don't call it a curricula. It's an additional learning, a complementary learning implement, but it's very important. We're teaching that across all our fields. So we're the only ones that actively teach human rights tolerance towards the other, understanding and learning how to deal with another who doesn't maybe not have your opinion and so forth. And we also try to instill basic, you know, democratic values by having elected student parliaments in all our fields. So we actively contribute to this kind of more greater tolerance in all our schools. And this has been, you know, also, again, one of our praised educational achievements. In fact, there was a 2019 U.S. Government Accountability Office report, wasn't there, which confirmed that your practices meet U.N. standards, which was declassified, I think, in 2019. Indeed, that's another report, of course, that, that confirms that. But in the meantime, as I said, we also have reports from the World Bank, from UNESCO that date back to 2021 or 2020 that confirm that if a student goes to an UNRWA school, he would not only finish the school one year earlier than his peers in governmental schools, but also with higher grades. And this, despite Due to austerity measures, we have classes in Gaza and many other theaters, many other operation fields with 50 children in a class, 50 children. Just imagine teaching them as a teacher and still they are among the best achievers of their age group compared to most countries. So just to say that education means a lot to us. We're working very closely also with the UK here that is always putting a lot of attention and an address on the neutrality and our compliance with best practices. So with the help of our donors, we have a rigorous quality insurance of what we teach, how we teach, and the results speak for themselves that this is a great investment. So coming back to one question earlier that you asked, you know, taxpayers in the UK, is it really worthwhile? Well, I think investing in education is an investment in hope. It's investing in people's future so that they really can become productive members of their societies. Where do you think Umrah is going? Is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Is there any possibility that Umrah will no longer be needed one day? Where are we headed? We're probably the only agency 
that regrets that we still are needed and needed to such an extent because still millions of Palestinian refugees rely on UNRWA for their survival, you know, as I, we have this over half a million children that otherwise would not have schooling. We have two million graduates of UNRWA that have contributed to the development of a whole region. There are so many issues that still cater for the relevance and the contribution of UNRWA to regional stability, just to mention also that we have 2 million of the poorest of Palestinians across the region that require food aid and assistance. So all that makes us still very much relevant. And we could only seriously hope that the international community will hopefully soon, but eventually find the time again to address the core issue. Refugees, the Palestinian refugees, the whole region deserves a fair and conclusive resolution of this conflict. People need to get on with their lives. And as you've seen, the desperation is just so extreme. If I may just recall, you know, the tragic incident you recently had with people from Lebanon trying to leave with boats, boat capsized. Many, many of them had been Palestinian refugees. You have Palestinian refugees among boats leaving the shores, Tunisia, Libya, for, for Europe. These are all signs of acute desperation. There's a strong feeling of abandonment among the Palestinians and their situation as described earlier, nearly all refugees in Lebanon, Gaza, and Syria are now below the poverty line. It's 80 or 90% in various countries. So in, in such situations, really, you need an agency like UNRWA. So I think, sadly, our need still is required and will be required for some time. But we're definitely not the ones to give up hope that this conflict will see its end in the near future. And, and finally, Matthias, you're going to be moving on after 20 years at UNRWA. What does the future hold for you? What's next? Do you know? That's an <laughs> intriguing question. Well, I will, of course, take a break. I think 30 years working for the Middle East is a long time. And I've seen quite a few, as you mentioned, that we mentioned earlier, crisis seniors and otherwise. So I think I'll take a break from the Middle East and maybe look at other issues. I think after such a long time, it's also good to maybe look at some some other prospects. So I will be retiring to Spain. And so I'll enjoy a little bit of the sun. And I can only say, Assalamualaikum. Matthias, we, we wish you very, very best with Life After UNRWA, and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council, and I was speaking to Matthias Bouchard of UNRWA. Matthias, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.